0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. Today is Monday, January 24th, 2022. I am your host, Matt Norden, here by myself today because we are about to air my interview with Ryan Godolphin. new listener welcome to the planet today here on tpt we cover the latest in climate change wildlife conservation renewable energy and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way monday and friday this show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics here on tpt we have a little bit for everyone so we're happy to have you as a listener And before we get into things, The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. And now, here's the interview. Today on TPT, we are joined by Ryan Godolphin. Ryan is an industrial designer based out of London and has worked with product design and development, app design, electronics, and more. Ryan, welcome to the planet today.
1: Hi, Matt. It's great to be on.
0: Yeah, it's cool to uh, have you on from across the pond.
1: <laughs> yeah, international, mate. Mr. Mr. Worldwide.
0: Ballet. <laughs> <Dale. laughs> yeah. um, definitely, definitely our first guest from the UK. So excited to check that one off the list. So oh, I'll, yeah, do we'll my, on board.
1: Uh, I'll do my best. I'll do my best <laughs> to represent.
0: Representing the whole whole UK yeah. here now. <laughs> so, yeah, let's, uh, let's get right into it. What led you to your current role as an industrial designer?
1: Yeah, so um, I've been an industrial designer now for about 10 years, um, but it definitely wasn't the career path I originally set out on. So growing up, I I always wanted to be an officer in the British Army, right? <laughs> and uh, that's what I was doing. You know, even when I went to uni, I um, I ended up joining the Territorial Army, which is like the National Guard or whatever. Okay. Um, but I sort of ended up falling in love with the design. So originally I was setting up to do civil engineering. And at college I did like physics, maths, um, you know, all stuff that would build a career in civil engineering. Um. But then, as I started to get into it, I just you know I just sort of lost passion for that side of the engineering mm-hmm. and um, started to pick up more artistic pursuits. That's when um, I found product design as a degree. Now, as a kid, I well, I was a nightmare because I used to take everything apart. So my parents would get a brand new TV, and the first thing I'd do is I'd, like, unscrew the remote and see what's inside it. Yeah, how oh, does this thing you know, work? <laughs> yeah, I'd get a toy for Christmas, and I'd be like, you know, within minutes it would be in pieces around me, and I wouldn't know how to put it back together. So <laughs> I, um, I was always quite inquisitive in that way. And then I found product design as a degree um, sort of halfway through college. So I'd already sort of started to build the building blocks to get into civil engineering. And then sort of found this thing and realized, no, God, that's like this is so obvious it's that like such a eureka moment it was such a passion of mine so then quickly I had to sort of change track so all the unis i would applied for end up cancelling all those applications and going to a different union sort of stuff and then got into it from there i mean for a long time i was still on this mindset of like oh cool maybe that'll be a good career once i get outside the army or whatever um but then as i was going through uni i was kind of doing both and um you know, it's one of those things where when you find your passion, everything else just kind of diminishes. Yeah. So, uh, and it was one of those. So, yeah. After that, um I worked at Sunseeker International, so designing super yachts. Um, that was of my first job out of uni. Um, so, I was doing interior, exterior, deck furniture, um, and that's really where I could sort of cut my teeth on on you know bespoke manufacturing as it were, so one off, super high end, all kinds of stuff. Right. So, we used to sell boats all around the world. Um, and some of the stuff that would come through would be like, you know, pop up dance floors with disco balls and I don't know, all kinds of like cranes and all, all sorts of exciting yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know, all the
0: necessities, right? Yeah, all the, all the <laughs> ambitious
1: stuff you can imagine that uh, the, the billionaires of the world would, would want on a boat. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Then after that, went and worked for Autodesk, who's a, a massive design software company, basically. And I became like a consult like a manufacturing consultant for them. Okay. um. And then that was actually a really cool job because originally they brought me on to to help manufacturers around the UK solve technical problems. So a lot of it was like so for instance, there was a, a customer I had who was the structural engineering company for Zaha Hadid, um, who's, you know, one of the one of the biggest uh, architects of our time, you know, she she passed away recently, but she did huge projects like um the Velodrome for the Olympics. They called it the Pringle. Oh wow big uh, swooping shapes. She did these like, really big, complicated, organic shapes. And uh, whilst it was her who led the design, it was the structural engineers who ultimately had to make the thing, you know, mm. no matter how complicated yeah. it was. So one of the jobs they got me into do was to, to basically, they were automatically creating like themes and structures and stuff. And they wanted a way to you know, intelligently or automatically make drawings and stuff for it so that's that's the kind of thing i was doing for them but through autodesk they also service like the media and entertainment and games industry and you know even cell engineering as well and that sort of stuff so i got trained up to to service those industries as well um which then kind of gave me a really broad base to be an industrial designer so since then i've designed consumer electronics so smart home devices cameras thermostats that kind of stuff Um, all the way up to EV chargers. So that's smart EV chargers that talk to the national grid, that kind of stuff. Um, You know, my last job before, so I've just recently started a new job just about two months in now. Uh, Congratulations. My last job was designing, thank you very much. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I was designing um, rugby tracking tech. So cool. yeah, we had a 3D tracker in the ball uh, and we could do stuff like live officiating so you can automatically detect forward passes, uh, people in front of the kicker, you know all kinds of stuff like that, and also get loads of data out. So doing all sorts of sportswear stuff, uh, and then most recently I am um, I working for a sort of a biotech startup. Really, so what we do is we, it's a bit of a left turn from a sort of traditional product design. And um, what we do is we do labs as a service, something like the WeWork of labs. Okay, if you are a biotech or a life science company. Um, and you, you know, you you have a great idea. Maybe you've done your postdoctorate or, or whatever in a research, and you've come up with an amazing idea, and you want to take it to market, and you're going to go make a business, but you don't have two hundred and fifty thousand pounds to set up your own fully spec lab or whatever. And um, you can come and rent lab space from us, and it's like six hundred pound a month. Um, so it's a really low barrier to entry. And then any equipment you need, on top of that, instead of having to go out and buy, like you know, say you need a mass spectrometer. Uh, which is a half million pound piece of equipment that you might not use all the time. Instead of that, what you can do is you can then rent that from us on a sort of a pay-as-you-go service, so you just pay for what usage you do. Um, now, the reason they brought me in is I have a really big wealth of experience both with sort of traditional manufacturing, so actually making the lab spaces and the stuff that goes in them, um, but also you know when I was working at Autodesk, one of the big things I did was was work with architectural firms. So. I've got a lot of experience integrating into building spaces and designing, you know, like really usable spaces. Like, you know, there's, there's a funny thing in life science that over the last two months, one of the things I've been really lucky is that I've been afforded the chance to do a lot of research into, into labs, basically. I've been going up and down the country, visiting life science companies and going into their labs and sort of see the extra spaces that they use and the kinds of equipment that goes into them, the kind of, you know, science that they do. And uh, yeah, a really big thing that I've got from it is that, um, you know, a lot of the people who design labs are not people who work in labs. And also gotcha. the way that labs are designed are quite often um, sort of designed by specification. So there'll be a list of like, oh, it's got to have, you know, 10 Bunsen burners, it's got to have four taps, and whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's how they'll go through the design process. And what they'll do is they'll just put labs, they'll just put the equipment you've asked for in there without any real thought about is this the right thing people need or is this in there in a way that's useful or whatever, right? So for instance, a big example of that, uh, lots of labs I've been into will have shelving all up the sides of the walls, right? And you go in, and uh, it's cool, you know, it looks like they've got loads of storage space. And you go in, and every single lab, without fail, the top shelf will be empty. Mm-hmm. And you'll say to them, like, oh, why is your top shelf empty? And they'll go, oh, well, it's actually too high... No one can reach it, and anything that goes on it is a bit dangerous. So we're not allowed to use them, <laughs> and it's bonkers. So yeah, so as a designer, it's a bit of a weird industry to come into, um, especially my background's very much sort of consumer products. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one that I'm super excited about because I, I think there's a load of innovation to be made here. Being, being an industrial designer in a quite engineering world is uh, it's quite an exciting thing because you can make you know quite a big change at least I hope to. So yeah.
0: That that sounds yeah. really cool and it seems like there's a really wide avenue for you to make an impact on cutting down on some of that waste that yeah it, it seems like with a lot of those things that you're talking about hey we need this and it needs to check yeah. off all these boxes but then you don't use you know whatever percent it is so cutting into that would be great
1: exactly and actually it's a funny thing as well so the lab spaces with designing right is um there's lots of units right so it's like, a, mm-hmm. it's like imagine going into an office and there's lots of desks right um but the really cool thing is that we're going to take a lot of time to focus on like what's a good lab what makes a really good lab but the cool thing is at least the way i see it is that you know for every hour that we're slaving away to try and make a lab just a little bit less or a little bit easier to use you know it's got it's amazing multiplier that you know even our first site is 110 labs right? So that's 110 Mm -hmm. times that you're reducing the amount of effort it takes for someone to come up with some amazing discovery, you know? yeah. And the kind of customers we've got are like lab grown meat or synthesized milk or all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's just really cool. It's a really cool space to be in,
0: you know? That sounds great. Yeah. Um, So I'm I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your experience with smart grids and smart energy projects. So what have you worked on and how are they important for our energy system as a whole?
1: Yeah. So, um, Basically, the company I used to work for, one of the things that they did was uh, they were a smart metering company, or they're a meter company, should I say. So they did gas and electric meters. Now, I don't know if you'll be familiar with this, but in the UK, um, there was a a government uh, project that was rolled out, which was to, it was called, um, I can't remember what they called it now, the smart meter rollout. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to upgrade all of the infrastructure within the UK on the grid, um, and what they wanted to do, the first piece for that was to put in smart gas and electric meters into every single home in the United Kingdom. Okay. And basically, what that means is it's it's like a traditional meter. You know, it's it's measuring your consumption with the with the one addition that it's got an antenna on top that can talk to a, a wider network, right? So it's almost like turning it into a mobile phone. Okay. So it, it's got two-way communication, right? Now, uh, that's what a company was doing. So I was brought on to head up their connected home team so that's when i was doing the smart home stuff um, but a big part of what we were doing was we were using our technology to interface with this and we were starting to build up on top of that platform that they had created because once you can talk to the meter you can actually do some really cool stuff so like for instance with the thermostats one of the things we could do is we could talk to the grid to see how much say gas was so if we were turning your heating on if you'd set a schedule What we could do is we could predict, you know, based on uh, data that we gathered from your home, we could predict how much energy it was going to cost you to heat your home up based on the schedule that you'd set. Okay. So what it meant was for, you know, for customers, it gave you a lot of predictability as to what your bills could be. But more importantly, we could then start doing some more like intelligent nudging. So we could say like, well, look, you know, you're turning your gas on when the, the price is a peak and actually you've got a pretty well insulated home. What we could do is we could shrink your, you know, the schedule that you've put on your on your heating uh, and ultimately save you money. But in reality, what we're doing is we're reducing the consumption of homes. So it was one of the ways we were trying to look to make homes more efficient. Now, that spun off onto a, onto a new project. So there's a, an investment arm of the government called Innovate UK, who what they do is they provide funding grants um, to create projects that uh, the government believes is is beneficial to the direction of which they're the to go, right? So we... Um, we found well, there was an innovate uk bid that was open which was to create a sort of a demo of what a smart grid or like a micro grid for energy generation could look like right Okay. Um, and we had a partner that we were working with who uh who creates ev charges um, and what what they wanted to do is basically there's a big thing with uh, electrification of, the, of you know of all things, including cars and you know wider things, is a, is a genuinely really good thing, right? It mm-hmm. reduces emissions at the point of use. Um, so long as the energy produced is very green, ultimately it reduces carbon emissions, so on and so forth. Um, but there is a big problem with it, which is something that I think is not necessarily talked about quite often, right? Which is that ultimately, so let's take a car for instance, right? So a Tesla Model S has something like a 100 kilowatt hour battery, right? Mm -hmm. which i think is the same amount of power that an average home will use in about two weeks so it's a really big thing right it's a really big battery and it takes a lot of power but the challenge you've got is that the grid such as it is so at least in the uk the national grid isn't sufficient we cannot produce enough energy to power all of these electric vehicles if everyone was to have an electric car right so that was the problem and what the UK government was setting out to do was to create infrastructure that would basically solve that problem. Now, there's a really cool thing with EV cars, which is that actually, once the power goes into it, it's not, it's not gone, right? It's not burnt. It's not like fossil fuels where it's gone. Right. Um, the power is still accessible, right? So there's a cool thing that you could do, which is that if you were to plug your car into your home, there's actually no reason why you couldn't power your entire home from your electric vehicle, Right. And let's say that, um, you know, you'd plugged into your home, but there's only you at home, you know, no one else is back. But next door, you know, uh, they've, they've come home, they've got kids, everyone's got the TV on, they put the kettle on, the oven's on, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And their demand is then higher. And they're then drawing more than, say, the grid could supply. What could happen is, well, the grid could see that your car, your EV, has a lot of power. So actually, you could sell your power to your next door neighbor. So what actually happens is instead of the national grid having to meet that demand, what can happen is locally, you can supply energy to each other. So what we were doing was under this grant, we were setting up basically a village, a village in the north of the UK. It was a new build development that we wanted to put all this technology into place where all the infrastructure was there that they could generate and supply power to themselves when they needed to. So that included things like, you know, uh, solar cells, um, home batteries, and the big one was EV chargers, so gotcha. as well as smart smart meters, that kind of stuff. So, um, there's a, the thing that we kind of need to add to the to the discussion here, which is an interesting one. So, um, there's a thing called the demand curve on the National Grid. So, um, often when you think of energy sort of supply and demand, it's very easy to sort of fall into the trap to think it's it's kind of flat, mm-hmm. as in like power stations are producing power, right? And that power is exactly what everyone needs. It's not quite true. So, for instance, a good example is that um, throughout the day, there's a variation in the amount of power that homes need, right? So when you wake up in the morning, you get up, you stick your kettle on, uh, make a cup of tea, and then, uh, you know, cook your breakfast, whatever, right? So there's a, there's a demand in the morning, but then you go to mm-hmm. work. So most of the, you know, most of the country traditionally, let's go pre, uh, pre-pandemic, pre <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, would go to an office, you know, and then the needs are met by, you know, sort of an aggregate of everyone. So it's a lower demand through the day. Then in the evening, everyone would come home, you know, sit the oven on, sit TV on, um, you know, all that good stuff and then go to bed. So in the evening, there'd be a very high demand curve. Right. And then at night when everyone's in bed, very low demand curve. Now, what happens is to meet that demand, the higher the demand, what would happen now is the national grid will turn on power supply that's very instantaneous. So it'd be things like gas power stations. Right. Which are, you know, very pollutive, uh, but very fast to meet demand. Yep. Um, if they're able to predict it a bit more, they might say turn on say a coal power station, which is a bit slower to ramp up and it was slow a bit slower to ramp down. But it's also something you can bring on and offline quite quickly. Um, the one thing that they won't vary is say nuclear, right? Nuclear has a, a relatively stable output. Mm-hmm. Um, and renewables as well. We can add to the discussion there. Renewables don't always produce exactly what you'd expect them to produce and necessarily at the times you need them to, right? So yeah. you can't produce so, you know solar power at night, for instance, and sometimes the wind isn't windy enough. So
0: Yeah, it's and, one of the challenges while we're uh, working out the whole battery storage side of the, the equation there. Exactly right. Yeah,
1: I mean, the batch, batteries are a, a big solution to that, right, to smooth out that curve. Mm-hmm. But there's another way to think about it is that you could actually change the demand side rather than the supply side. So traditional energy sort of power solutions were well, you know, like everyone comes home at night and they need a lot of power, so actually we need to produce a lot of power. When in actual fact, what you could do is you could reduce the demand in places that can be reduced. So alongside this, another project we were doing was um, basically to reduce demand-side power on demand. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you're, uh, if you're a manufacturer, let's say, and you, you use a lot of heavy machinery, right, which has a very big draw in the grid, Now, if you were able to shift your power supply very quickly away from the grid and onto, say, battery storage or solar or whatever, um, you could drop that demand when it's needed. If you can turn off enough people who are using power, you know, it could even be things like um, a supermarket freezer, right? Freezers have quite a lot of insulation. If you turn them off, you know, they will stay within a safe zone of, you know, being cold. For, for a relative period of time before you need to then turn them back on. So mm-hmm. it could be as short as 10 minutes is all you need. But if you can turn off enough items, the amount of demand that you've saved is the equivalent of, say, a power station. You know, If you could shift a gigawatt of power, suddenly you didn't need to turn on a power station. So being in control of that switch is like being in control of a power station. So there are suppliers who will pay you to do that as a service. So if you're a heavy equipment user for instance, um, you can look at these kind of deals with your energy supplier where you can shift your power and the national grid will pay you to do that. So that was another thing that we were trying to do. But on a smaller scale, this feeds back into the Innovate UK bed, was that um, if you're able to shift, say, a home away from the national grid and onto their home battery, so say their car or solar batteries or whatever, um, then you do the same thing. You reduce that demand side and you can flatten out that curve. So that demand curve becomes, becomes much easier to manage. So, that's
0: really cool. Yeah. It's a yeah. really interesting think, take yeah. on efficiency.
1: Yeah, I hope that's con- there's a lot of different concepts I hope I've boiled down well there, but uh it was a f- it was a fun thing to be part of, you know, we were working a lot with uh universities and that kind of stuff, which was uh, a pretty exciting thing as well.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. So, another question I had for you, we spoke a little bit um when we were setting this all up about plastics, and a question that I have is why is plastic so prevalent in pretty much everything today? and do you see that changing at all (laughs) okay
1: yeah so do you know what this is uh it's a funny one right so i i sometimes get the question why is why is everything plastic right Mm -hmm. and i guess to the listeners at home i'm in a rare position that i am the person often who's making the choices to which material we go for right um so maybe there's a bit of a how the sausage is made secret i can give you here as to why everything's plastic (laughs) right um so let's talk about the benefits of plastic. Often you'll hear all the negative things about plastic, and there is a lot of negative things about plastic, which we will also address later on. However, um, let's talk about some of the benefits, right? So plastics, what, like 100 years old? Something like, I think Bakelite was, was like 1910 is invented, um, and it's a, it's a synthesized polymer, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's a lab-created material. Now, the amazing thing about that is that you can essentially create it to have almost any properties that you'd want, in any situation right so for instance um a really good sort of uh, avant-garde sort of use case here is um so your hospitals for instance if you if you need to wash highly contaminated items right it could be bed sheets could be lab coats could be whatever right there's a bit of a contamination issue which is that when you when you take them from the site so say from a hospital to the site that is ultimately going to wash them how do you take them out when they're highly contaminated and say put them in a washing machine, right? Mm-hmm. It's quite a funny use case there is do you make the, the laundrette, you know, to a really high standard of hazchem or whatever, or you know, are they wearing, you know, spacesuits and all sorts of yeah. stuff, or, you know, is there another way around it? Well what you can do is you can formulate a plastic that dissolves in hot water. Right. So what you do is you bin, you put them in essentially a bin bag in the hospital, bag them up and they're sealed they then go to the laundrette. The laundrette then doesn't have to worry about contamination. They can just grab it and put it straight into the washing machine and then it dissolves in place. Now, there's another place that you'll commonly come across that exact plastic, which is in the tablets or that go in your washing machine. So if you ever put a liquid tab in your washing machine, it's the same polymer, right? Mm-hmm. So plastics have this amazing sort of component, which is that whatever, whatever the you know, the end result, the engineering constraints that you're trying to make are, there is a plastic that can fit that need, right? And if it doesn't, sometimes it's a case of just formulating it to fit, fulfill that need, you know? And those mm-hmm. needs can be things like it needs to have really high impact resistance but also be really lightweight or it needs to be electrically insulating or it can't, you know, it has to go into a high salinity environment. It's going to be under the sea at, you know, 10,000 PSI. You know, you need something to be strong, resistant to salt and pressure, you know? And mm-hmm. you can find a plastic to meet that. Even things like it um, needs to be highly radio-transparent. If you're designing a, a, an MRI machine, for instance, can't use metals. It's a giant superconducting magnet that you're going to spin inside a, yeah. you know, <laughs> a cylinder. And also, you need it to be able to propagate radiation very well without, without you know, blurring the image, for instance. So um, there's a formulated plastic specifically for MRI machines for exactly that reason. So polymers are this uh, often get a bad rap. Rightly so, but you've got to remember, they are this amazing, phenomenal thing. And that is a big reason why they come they come into products in that way. The biggest reason, though, and ultimately, this is where I think if we want to make concerted change to the way in which we use plastics, the big reason why plastics are often selected in places where they're not necessarily the only candidate, but they are often the cheapest candidate now what a plastic is is basically it's just a hydrocarbon right it's a polymer it's a polymer chain of of hydrogen and carbon atoms that you sort of trick into holding a shape for a little bit of time you know one of the big Mm -hmm. problems with plastic is it's such a temporary material um the second you shot a a piece of plastic it's already degrading you know you expose it to ultraviolet light and it starts breaking down and becomes brittle you know Mm -hmm. you expose it to salt water and it becomes brittle it absorbs water and all kinds of things it's such a temporary material which is one of the problems with it really but um you know the big the big advantage to it is that it's it's so cheap now why is it cheap the reason it's cheap is that it's it, you know it takes a very low pressure so it's very little energy to to make it into a shape Um the tooling that you use to to create the shape the cast as you will um is also very cheap so an injection mold tool now, I can I can get from China for for a very small product, let's say the size of a phone. You can get a tool for about two grand. It's it's you know you could buy it on your credit card. It's not even like you need to have a proper financing or anything like that. Um, whereas you know if we're looking at something like die casting, if you're casting a metal, you know then you've got to worry about well, what's the melting point of this metal? Because we need to use something to make the cast from it. We need to make from a higher melting point of a of a metal, right? <laughs> And mm-hmm. then as soon as the metal goes into it, you know, it's going to start wearing away at the tool. And, you know, you only get so many shots out of that kind of stuff. Plastic, you know, a tool, if you do, you know, a case hardened tool, you can get those for, so basically a very, a very tough tool. It's been, it's been created and then hardened to make it very, you know, very resistant to wear. Um, you know, you can get a very hardened tool that would do a million shots. That That is, you know, cast within it, you know, a million parts out of it. And you can get that for about 10 grams. So it's very cheap. And then the materials, you know, you're talking... To get a ton of plastic you know it can be as little as two three hundred pounds sometimes you can make you know millions of products out of that so that's a big problem with polymers is that uh you know why are they so prevalent well they're incredibly cheap so
0: mm-hmm.
1: i think uh you know cost is king. <laughs> or, yeah exactly cost is king so it's a funny thing you know engineering i often like to think of it like uh so you know like recording studios you know they've got those big um those big desks with the sliders Yeah. And they go up and down. You can change your, your base and travel and stuff, right? When you're creating a product, oftentimes it's a bit like having one of those boards, right? And what you're trying to do is you're trying to tweak all of those little sliders together because every product you make ever is a compromise, right? Mm-hmm. You've got all these engineering constraints throughout. And there's one slider that you don't have direct control over, right? And that's cost. Mm-hmm. Cost is always dictated by, well, you know,
0: what's the price from the supplier? By the everything else that yeah, goes in. By ahead. everything else, Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: And ultimately, really, what you're doing in engineering is you're trying to slide these sliders so that you can achieve a product that's good enough, but it's also at a good cost, right? Mm-hmm. And plastic's a really nice way. It's a really nice way to be like, well, you know, let's make it out of plastic, and that cost is going to come way down, you know. Um, yeah. So let's talk about some of the uh, some of the other bad stuff about plastics. I guess mm-hmm. um, I said before it's a really temporary it's a really temporary material. You know, I have toys that I grew up with. I inherited from my granddad you know and my dad they passed down to me I don't know of many toys I have that I could pass on to my children for instance you know yeah and you know it's in no small part because they're all plastic you know they don't they don't last very long it's a bit of a shame so uh, yeah so plastic is a is, is a big issue in that sense it's such a temporary material now is there things you could do to change that yeah you know there's a lot of materials that are you know in certain situations are as good as plastic if not better so one i love to talk about is aluminium so uh, let's talk about let's, it's always a bit easier to have an example so um so water bottles right so uh, in america mm-hmm. this is a bit of a, I tell you what this is a bit of a cultural difference now right i'm all right yeah. in saying in america there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people who buy their water from water bottles right as opposed yeah. to tap, right
0: yeah they come in big cases um uh... I personally have uh, an aluminum bottle, as we call it over Amazing. in the states. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I also have um, another reusable bottle that's like a thick plastic that's you know BPA free. You can throw it in the uh, dishwasher. Yeah. But yeah, a lot yeah. of people do buy their water. Yeah,
1: so here's the thing, right? So uh, the reason why companies will use plastic for a water bottle is a f- is a few reasons, right? Cost is obviously one. If you're if you're running a manufacturing line doing. Uh, what would be called fast-moving consumer goods in that sense, right? That's yogurt pots, that's cleaning products, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's things that you're doing immense volume for, right? For for water bottles, we're probably talking, you know, billions of units a year. I think Coca-Cola is the biggest polluter in the world, you know, and their biggest product is bottles, you know? Mm -hmm. So why are they using plastic? One very quick shot time. So, you know, it takes a very short amount of time to make a plastic bottle, for instance, which means you can... Meet that demand of a billion units a year, for instance, right? Uh, low cost, so and also the tooling lasts a very long time. So the tools they're using are probably a few hundred thousand pounds, right? But mm-hmm. they're going to get you know many millions of shots out of those, you know, if not if not hundreds of millions, for instance, right? Um, the other reasons that are less obvious as to why I use plastic. So plastic, you can take pretty much any form. Now the reason that's important is you can do things like optimize the packing density. So if you're going to ship a product from point A to point B in the world, uh, any gaps are is air, and you're paying to ship air, so it's less efficient, right? Yes. So what you want to do is you want to maximise that packing density, you want to increase, reduce the amount of air that you're paying to ship, because you know that's loss of product, so that's loss of loss of value, right? So plastic gives you a really good packing density. Uh, it doesn't spoil, you know, the product is you know somewhat chemically in there. It doesn't necessarily change the taste of of foods, although that's not true because Coke from a bottle definitely tastes better than from a, from a glass bottle tastes better than from a plastic bottle. 100%. The <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, to the customer, it's an acceptable change. They still buy Coke, you know, they're still in business. So um, so that's what, one of the reasons why they'll take plastic. Now, a, a perfect alternate product or an alternate material is aluminium, right? So aluminium uh, is very uh, carbon-intensive to create, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, what you're doing is you're taking bauxite and you're, you're stripping it away from the aluminium away from rock using electrolysis. You're basically zapping it until all you're left with is aluminium, right? However, to recycle aluminium only takes five percent of the energy it takes to produce it. It's highly recyclable, it's very huh. easy to cover, very easy to separate. It's, it's non-ferrous. It's one of the few non-ferrous common materials. So, if you pass a magnet over a conveyor belt of metals often you're left with only aluminium of, of regularly recycled stuff. It's a very low melt point. It's something like 800 degrees. You can melt it in your fire. If you ever wanted to cast it, you know, it's, it's very easy to do. So it's not very energy intensive to, to change. And also, unlike plastic, it's very readily reusable. It doesn't degrade. You know, melting it and reforming it causes no issues to it. There's no, there's no degradation in the materials. It's mechanically strong. Uh, it doesn't cause change in flavour, which is a big one. Uh, huge <laughs> incredibly high you know formability you, know, you can cold, extrude it, you can draw it, you can do all sorts of stuff um and also it's very low weight, so even shipping it shipping weight's less of an issue, and also beer cans are all aluminium, so there's already the industry is set up and it's geared for producing beverage containers in aluminium so mm-hmm. if um if there's one thing you know to the listeners at home if there's one thing you could do already to reduce your carbon impact, if you go to the shops and you see. A but bo- you know a box of plastic water bottles versus aluminium cans, go for the aluminium can. I think I read somewhere. I'll, Joe, you need to fact-check me on this one. But uh, I think I read somewhere in a in a perfect system that aluminium can once you put it in the recycling can be another aluminium can within 28 days. Wow, it's that recoverable. Yeah, it's that good. So, yeah, there's a funny thing about. So we could actually talk about recycling plastics here actually because this is one. Uh, this is one of those things that it feels like uh, it should be a whole chapter on. Like you know, like can see conspiracy when they're like, "Oh yeah, no, this is the this is the real debt, right?" Yeah. Um, well, here so, comes here it comes for yeah, this episode. <laughs> you know, you're ready? You ready for the uh, <laughs> the inside scoop? And um, plastic isn't isn't re- recyclable, right. right? There's two types of plastic. There's thermosetting and thermosoftening, which describes what happens when you heat it. Now, thermosetting. Um, you get very strong it bonds between the polymer chains. Now, what that means is when you heat it, instead of breaking down, it will burn, right? So there's pl- maybe as a kid, you played with a lighter and uh, you tried to burn plastics. And some of them, you know, some of them sort of melted and dripped away or whatever, um, but other than smoked and sort of crinkled away, right? So thermosetting plastics, once they're shot, once they're in a product form, That's it. They can't be changed. So they are utterly non-recyclable. So if you ever see plastics that say they're not recyclable, it's because they fall into that category of of plastics, right? Mm -hmm. So already that's, you know, half the material, half the plastics gone, right? So the other half are thermosoftening, right? That is plastics that when you heat them, they then melt down and you can recover them and you can reshot those in an injection mold, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is... In going through the process of heating them to then break them down, to then bring them back into raw stock so you can re-injection mould them, which, by the way, again, you heat them and turn them into a new product, what you do is you degrade the bonds between the polymers. So what happens is if you create a product that is made of 100% recycled plastic, that plastic, as soon as it's in the mould, is already already, uh, breaking down. It wow. becomes brittle. So this is the challenge. So if you buy a one hundred percent recycled plastic product, um, you are essentially buying a lesser product, which means that you can't use it in any 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 application that has sort of engineering requirements, right? Can't gotcha. be used for anything that needs to be strong, anything like that. So what tends to happen is the most you'll ever see if it says it's got recycled products in it, often it'll be about ten percent. Ten percent is as much you can get away with without you know without uh, without greatly reducing the mechanical strength of the product. So. It's a bit of a challenge. Whereas aluminium doesn't have that problem, not at all. So if you can, uh, you know, if you can make a choice with your feet, vote with your wallet. Then uh, I'd say go for the aluminium can any
0: day. Awesome, yeah, and I'm sure that uh, you're definitely gonna have some people who are listening right now say, you know what, I'm I'm opting for the aluminium cans from now on.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and (laughs) hey, it
0: tastes better. better. No one no one likes drinking out of a of a plastic bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. All right, Ryan. So before we let you go. I have three fun rapid fire questions for you. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. All right, what's your favorite animal? Let's go with leopard. Love it. (laughs) Number two, what is one thing you do to be more sustainable in your own life? I cycle to work. Nice. I do yeah. as well. <laughs> oh, nice one! There you go. So, uh,
1: yeah. great, great for your body, body too. At the moment, it's great for your body. I will tell you what, London traffic is not great for your body. So, <laughs> <laughs> same with you. Uh, this <laughs> bruise on my elbow will uh, will attest to.
0: <laughs> oh man! <laughs> yeah. So, all right, and last one. What is one environmental topic you think people should be more aware of after hearing from you today?
1: Uh, plastics. Yeah, as to uh, as to whether or not to use them. If you can yeah. avoid them, do. Oh, actually, one last thing I'll add. Sorry, I'm going to extend this one up. One (laughs) last thing you can do. If you do have a plastic product, the best thing you can do is reuse it. If you can find a new use for your plastic product, what you've done is you've blasted, you know, what was the expected end of life of that product and you've turned it into something completely new. That's the best thing you can do. If you can avoid buying something else by reusing a plastic, something else in your home, amazing. You'll save the world.
0: Yeah, we we often remind everybody that, it's reduce your consumption, reuse what you can, and then recycle what you can. Exactly, Ryan, if people want to keep up with you and hear more about what you're doing, where can they follow you? So you can find me on Instagram. Uh,
1: I'm Brian Godolphin. So R-Y-A-N-G-O-D-O-L-P-H-I-N. So it's actually go and then dolphin. Um, and you'll find me on Instagram.
0: Awesome. Sounds good. All right, Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun. I definitely learned a lot. And... Like we said earlier, yeah. as our first guest from the UK, you're, you are our official United Kingdom correspondent now. <laughs> I love that. I love it.
1: I feel like it should be a bit more regal, what with uh, you know UK's <laughs> royal background. Maybe I can be like your, you know, Sir uh, International Affairs Knighthood or something. I don't know, OBE, <laughs> the, the Duke of the Duke of uh, Plastic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that that works for us, so. <laughs> It's been great to chat to you, man. Yeah, you too. We will talk soon. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, speak to you soon. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Thanks again to Ryan for joining us and hope everybody liked the interview. We're going to be back on Friday with Nick and Giselle in the studio for the first time in 2022. If you like the show, please give us a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and a five star rating on Spotify. For the planet today, I'm Matt Norden. See you on Friday.